0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Today's extract is from The Wings of Pegasus by Brigadier George Chatterton. Chatterton was one of the founding fathers of British Airborne Forces and raised the Glider Pilot Regiment. Here's his account of landing in Sicily in 1943. I drove down to the strip in my jeep with my batman, Alec Gall, accompanied by the brigade commander, Pip Hicks, the senior medical officer and various staff officers. Silver wings glinting in the sun, 30 Dakotas and Waco gliders were waiting the signal to take off. Mine was the leading glider, and as I climbed into the cockpit with Peter Harding, my adjutant and second pilot, I looked down at the face of Alec Gall for what I thought might be the last time. It was a tense moment. There was a strong wind blowing, the light was hard and brittle, and great waves seemed to leap into the air at the far end of the runway. As the signal to take off was given, the propellers of the Dakotas started up with a whirl. Dust flew off the runway and whipped into the air, and the tugs slowly moved into position. Gripping the controls, I gave the thumbs-up signal, the rope tautened, and I heard over the intercom the faint sound of the Dakota pilot's voice but the crackling and interference was so bad from the beginning to end of the trip that we were never able to hear each other clearly. We moved slowly forward, then faster and faster across the dusty strip until suddenly the Dakota disappeared in the dust and I was forced to hold the glider in position by the tow rope's angle. Then, still gathering speed, we were out of the dust and in the clear and there, below, was the silver Dakota tug and below her again the sea smothered in foam. It was extremely rough, the glider jumping up and down from side to side, and I held on like grim death, concentrating on holding position above the Dakota. But soon I was able to relax as I became accustomed to the movements of the aircraft and its behaviour. After a while, I handed over to Peter Harding, but he was very sick and in no state to fly, so I took back the stick and without relief piloted the glider for the next 400 miles a tow of four hours for the time was 6pm and we were scheduled to reach the target or landing zone at about 10 o'clock. Settling down to it, I allowed myself a glance astern. It was an exhilarating sight, for there, stretching back in the evening light, was a great armada of well over 200 aircraft. It was a great moment, one not to be missed, and all the hazards, risks and difficulties still to be faced seemed to dissolve into thin air. But it was rough. The spray seemed to be passing the very wingtips, adding to the sensation of speed. I wondered if German fighters were likely to intercept, and I remember experiencing a sense of astonishment when they did not come, and as the darkness descended, a feeling of elation that we had got away with it, for we would have been sitting ducks if a force of fighters had come across us. And what a target we would have made. The storm did not abate, and as the sun went down, glowing red on the horizon, the foam still sweeping through the gloom, the sea changed from cold blue to dark green, and then to a menacing black. By now my arms were aching intolerably from holding the glider in position and I felt my endurance ebbing. My eyes and my head throbbed from ceaselessly concentrating on formation flying and on the tug ahead. Then as darkness came the Dakota switched on a row of lights in the trailing edge of the wings enabling me to see the tug clearly against the dark horizon. It was a little later that I thought I was losing control for the whole glider seemed to be sliding away to port. I tried the left rudder, then the right rudder, then the full aileron, but nothing happened. I seemed to be in a tremendous skid. I tried every flying trick I knew but could not alter the position, and as gradually we slid out and alongside the tug I felt sick with apprehension. How long could the rope last without snapping? Looking out I saw that the tug was level with us in the moonlight. We were flying side by side. What could I do? I think I must have been shouting at Peter Harding, for I could hear Brigadier Pip Hicks' voice, deep and resonant, in the back. I say, all is not well in front there. Eventually, how, I shall never know, the glider gradually came back into position. Had we gone down in that sea, we would most likely have never been heard of again. So we flew on, looking down. I saw the cliffs of Malta below dark mystical and menacing and as I passed over them I thought back to the night when I had flown from Sicily in the bow fighter and wondered if the same aircraft was anywhere in the darkness protecting us. This was our turning point from here we flew north towards Sicily gradually gaining height and as we did so the air seemed to become calmer. The bright moonlight turned the water to silver and I began to experience a great peace and elation. As we climbed I searched the darkness for Sicily and picked out the coast recognizing its shape from the maps and charts we had studied. We changed course again and started to fly down the coast at some 1900 feet trying to discern exactly where we were but it was very difficult to do this and fly the glider at the same time. Suddenly flak started to come up from Syracuse which was being raided by the RAF in order to divert the Italians attention from us out of the corner of my eye i could see other aircraft behind me for we were trying to fly in what might be termed echelon right so that we could land in formation on the coast can you see the release point peter i cried trying to locate our position another five minutes or so sir he replied looking at his watch then there it is peter shouted i can't see a damned thing i said reaching for the release lever and as i did so i saw the tug starting to turn and dive ''My God, he's pushing off!'' I shouted and heaved on the lever. The glider lifted up and, after all that bucketing about, seemed light and easy to handle. I turned towards the coast and it was then I received a jolt. As we lost height, it seemed as if a great wall of blackness was rising up to meet us and at that moment the moonlight disappeared. I was devastated for I realised that if this was happening to me, it was happening to the other pilots. What were we going to be able to do under these unforeseen conditions?'' Afterwards, I discovered that the screen of blackness was a pall of dust created by the intensity and length of the gale. It completely obliterated our target. The only thing that could be said in its favour was that it made the night so bad that the Italians could never have expected we would be such fools as to come. Descending into the darkness, I had no idea where I was or what I was doing, but seeing a black object below, I turned my glider towards it and at that moment out of the darkness came a burst of tracer bullets. There was a jolt. I saw the fabric tear open and my port wing was hit as I began to turn. I straightened her out and down we came, the sea rushing up to meet us. Somehow I levelled out as with a great splash we ditched. The water came over my head and as I came up I was aware of shouting and scrambling figures as I fumbled with my straps spitting out brine. Then two hands grasped my armpits and I was hauled out of the cockpit onto the fuselage. Are you all right, George? I heard Pip Hicks call. Yes, sir, I think so, I answered still in a daze. Then, as the mists cleared, I saw the dark forms of my passengers in the sea, on the wings and on the fuselage. Everybody keep down on the wings, Hicks ordered, and we lay flat, looking at the coast, the glider floating like a boat and giving us something substantial to hang on to. A searchlight suddenly shone from the shore, swung across the sea, rested on us for a moment and then swung out again. Keep still, dead still, hissed Hicks. We did the light swung out again and this time lingered on us a brief moment and then a hail of tracer bullets streamed from the shore and i remember sinking in the sea sick and terrified with an awful helpless feeling for there was no cover the hail of bullets continued in bursts but by some mercy none hit us they were just too high and hit the sea behind us it's no good staying here i said to pip hicks shall we swim for it okay george he replied i think under these conditions it would be best quiet as possible. Come on, everybody.' And so we set off. I can remember my feeling of nakedness even now, for the phosphorescence seemed to light up the night as we made our way to shore. Pip Hicks looked huge, like a Spanish galleon, as he ploughed through the water, and I told him to keep down, but he said he couldn't because his May West was blown up too high. Soon we reached the shore, soaking and shaking with cold, but without weapons, for they had gone to the bottom. We felt quite helpless.' One of us, I can't remember who it was, climbed up the cliff while the rest of us took refuge a few yards from the sea. Suddenly there was an ear-splitting explosion. Bombs crashed all round us and an aircraft hit the sea with a tremendous crash just where we had been swimming. The whole sea caught fire and I lay there paralysed with fear and shock watching the flames lapping the shore. Incongruously all I could think of was the brandy on a Christmas pudding. By now the enemy had taken alarm, and spasmodic firing was going on all around us. We felt helpless, and I, for my part, was utterly dejected and despondent. All the planning and training exercises in the world could not have foreseen this situation. I wondered what had happened to the other gliders and their crews, and as I lay there, one of them, white and ghostly, was caught in the searchlights. Flak burst all round it, and then there was another, and another, and another.